Welcome to the EPMe.me show, where we get into the details of all things heart, rhythm, and ECG related with the best minds in cardiac electrophysiology. Hosted by David Ornstein. Hi, this is David Orenstein, and welcome to the EPMe.me show, episode three. I first want to thank you for all the feedback that I'm getting and the comments that I'm getting. This is really a show that I want it to be dedicated to the listeners. I want the listeners to be able to tell me what they want to learn about, what they want to hear about. And it's really important, the feedback that I'm getting, both the positive and the more constructive uh, feedback that I'm getting. And uh, one of the feedbacks I got, was that the show is a tiny bit too long, and maybe if I could break it up a bit more, the episodes. So, here it is, this is episode 3, where we're looking at using CRM devices in arrhythmia diagnosis. In episode 1, which you can see a link above right now in YouTube, um, that we discussed about subspecializing, and should be sub-sub-subspecializing, in devices and electrophysiology arrhythmia. Um... And now, and then in episode two, look at the link above in YouTube now, or you can see it on the blog. If you're reading the blog, you can click on the link now, Um, is uh, we looked at ILRs, implantable loop recorders, implantable EKG machines, and using them in arrhythmia diagnosis. And the next device that we're going to talk about is a case called the tachycardia that's too slow to detect. So what am I talking about? I'm talking actually about today, about using um, with defibrillators the home monitoring devices that we have, that we actually mentioned a tiny bit in episode two with the implantable loop recorders. Now, as we said, there's an ongoing battle between EP and devices. Um, We've been discussing the use of devices in arrhythmia diagnosis or EP previously, but maybe we have to ask ourselves, are we losing our skills and our tools if we're just focusing on devices only or on electrophysiology only. The amount of patients that have actually implanted cardiac electronic devices and the complexity of the devices implanted, both therapeutic and with their diagnostic functions, have grown rapidly in the past few decades. Now, this together with the increase in life expenditure expectancy of our patients has resulted in an increased burden on the device clinics which each visit is taking longer why is it taking longer well we said we gain more and more functions especially diagnostic functions and all that data we have to analyze further so we have more patients living longer more indications for having devices and more information to process in their visits now We have a solution that we discussed last week, remote home monitoring um, that you can see in the graphic in the picture. Remote home monitoring allows us automatic remote care of the patients with implanted devices. So how does it work? It has periodic telemetric transmissions to um, using traditionally the cellular, the mobile, the telephone network to a central server or in the cloud of the manufacturer of the company. Now, that server, that patient's data, goes into a certain area which we can 
assess, the medical team can assess by accessing it through their dedicated website and they can actually do a follow-up visit for these patients. Now, the follow-up in these virtual clinics, as we like to call them, really favor and help us optimize the device programming and the treatment, whether it's medical therapy um, or device therapy, for the patient, as well as early uh, diagnosis of acute situations. What does this mean? That, as we said, we have a cost of an added burden on the arrhythmia device in clinic patients, but now we've got another added burden that we have to monitor them from home and look at their remote monitoring. So for us, there's a cost side that we have extra staff and extra manpower needing to monitor these uh, patients from their home. But on the other side, it reduces our, our burden on the clinics, on the inpatient clinics. However, there's an inherent benefit that we can reduce the burden on the inpatient clinics and we can diagnose and we can find issues, whether it's device issues or therapy issues, medical issues with the patient, before they become critical. And it's proven to reduce um, the the rate of uh, um, rehospitalization and complication rate in patients because we're uh, discovering much earlier what their issues are through the remote monitoring. Now, I would like to show you a case, though, where we can maybe look at the remote monitoring in a certain device of a patient, and we can say, hmm, what benefit did this remote monitoring give us? And this is a very interesting case of a dear, dear patient of mine. This is an observational case study of a 72-year-old male heart failure patient with ischemic cardiomyopathy, severely reduced global systolic function that's left ventricle function when in the echocardiograph the ultrasound of the heart he had an injection fraction of 19 percent that's ability of the heart to take the blood that's in it and send it to the rest of the body so he's only actually sending out 19 percent of the blood in his heart out to his body that's severely reduced function Now, this patient is implanted with a CRTD. What is that? That's a defibrillator, a D, a defibrillator. That's also a pacemaker. That's a CRT. CRT is cardiac resynchronization therapy. These patients, we want them to be paced 100% of the time because of their heart uh, failure. We want to take the load off the heart and we want to resynchronize the heart through pacing of both left and right ventricles and make these patients 100% paced in order to improve and increase that ejection fraction that we spoke about, increase the global systolic function of the heart and re-give back the synchrony to the heart. Now this patient though is a defibrillator and this defibrillator also includes home monitoring. Now, one more thing I want to add about this patient is that he's 100% pacing dependent. That means if on a day-to-day visit, I will check to see what his underlying rhythm was without the pacemaker pacing, there wouldn't be. I would reduce down the heart rate and I wouldn't see any underlying rhythm. He is dependent on his pacemaker. Without a pacemaker, he wouldn't have an underlying rhythm. Okay, 
So not only do we want him 100% paced, he's actually dependent on it. And a third point that I want to, and further additional point I will say, that I want to make is that he's taking continuously, daily amiodaron. That's known uh, um, in the uh, sales name of as Procar. But amiodaron is a drug that uh, lowers the heart rate and it also reduces the amount of um, tachycardic uh, events, whether it's atrial or ventricle. Um, however, it also has other side effects to it that aren't too uh, pleasant for the patient. But he's t- on amiodarone. It's one of the best drugs that we have in these cases when the beta blockers aren't working. Now, have a look here on our graph that we've got in front of us. This is a graph on the Biotronic Home Monitoring System. I'm going to pull up here my laser pointer. Yes. And I want to show you what we're looking at here. So we're looking at the percentage of being paced over time. So here we have the percentage and here we have time. And we can see three different lines. We have a gray um, circles here that says here is atrial pacing percentage. Then we have a blue diamond that's right ventricle pacing, the second lead. And then the third lead, which is the uh, fuchsia, I guess you could say, colored triangles, is the left ventricle pacing. Now, I said that this patient is 100% pacing dependent. And we want him to be 100% paced. So what's going on in this patient? I see over time, he's, he's had these events where the amount of being paced has dropped and then it comes back and it drops again and then it comes back and then it, he stays at being paced for a while and then drops and comes back and drops and comes back. How can it be that this patient isn't being paced 100% of the time when he's pacing dependent? Well, if you look at his recordings of events, it's saying there are no events. So wait, what's happening here? This patient isn't pacing dependent anymore? Well, I know this patient, and I know he is pacing dependent. So what's going on here? So let's look at the EKGs that come from the Biotronic Programmer. So before we gave him any form of treatment, let's analyze what we have here. Now already here, it actually says slow VT, so it's given away. But let's still look at what we have here. We have the marker channels here. So these are the ventricle marker channels, and we're seeing sense event in the right ventricle, and we're seeing sense events in the left ventricle. We're also looking here at the next line down, the third line down, we have the far field EGM signal. That's a recording taken from the electrode in the right ventricle, to the device that's actually placed uh, in the pectoral uh, 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 muscle area by the um, left-hand shoulder. So we're getting a far-field look that's kind of similar to looking at a regular EKG. And here we're seeing a wide, complex signal, not a standard narrow signal, a wide, complex signal. Okay, our next line down is our atrial channel. Now, if you look very carefully, we have atrial signal, atrial signal, atrial signal, atrial signal, atrial signal, atrial signal. So we do have an atrial signal here. Then let's look at the right ventricle and left ventricle pacing uh, um, uh, signals. Not paced, sense signals. 
and a left ventricle signal and right ventricle signal, left ventricle and right ventricle signal. And what we're seeing here, that there's more ventricle signals than atrial signals. What you would call V is bigger than A. What is this? It's VT. The patient is in VT. We called the patient in in one of these episodes where he's not being paced. We're sticking a programmer on him and we're seeing he's in VT. Why isn't his defibrillator picking up on this and treating it? So, there are two options. One, it's not diagnosing it, but we see it's reading the signals. Okay, so if it's not diagnosing it, so maybe it's not programmed to pick up at this rate and call it VT and treat it. Well, if you actually look at the rate that this is going at by the number of squares that we have going on down here, he's got VT of about 90 beats per minute. Now, not only in the biotronic, but none of the implanted defibrillator devices can detect and treat VT at 90 beats a minute. That's too slow. It's slow VT. It's below the programmable cutoff. Not only what has been programmed, it's below the programmable cutoff rate for the VT detection and therefore VT therapy. So despite antiarrhythmic medication, the amiodaron, the Procar, which maybe in spite, because that actually can slow down the VT episodes that he's having, this patient is having VT episodes that aren't recorded and aren't being treated. Now, VT is a dangerous rhythm. Admittedly, it's not as dangerous at 90 beats a minute than at 160, 180 beats a minute. But when you have an ejection fraction of 90% at the best of times, 19% at the best of times, this patient can't function. He can't go up and down the stairs in this VT. And it could worsen into congestive heart failure because his heart isn't contracting synchronized anymore. So what is going on here? What can we do to treat this patient? So the patient came into the hospital and we cardioverted him. How did we cardiovert him? We did what is called an ATP pacing. Okay, the defibrillator has two ways of treating VT. One is a shock that many of you know, the scene from the movies when suddenly someone comes rushing in with a defibrillator, puts on two pads and presses shock and the whole body jumps and beep, 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 the patient comes back to life. Or, so the defibrillator knows how to give a shock through the electrodes in the heart, or ATP. What is ATP? Anti-tachycardic pacing. How does it do it? If the VT, say, is going at 120 beats a minute, so it take, it will pace the heart, the ventricles, at 140 beats a minute. And by pacing the ventricles at 140 beats a minute is hopefully breaking the cycle, the re-entry cycle of the VT, and allows, after it's done a burst of 10, 12 beats, it allows a break and allows for the sinus node to take control in a more organized fashion of uh, of uh, the heart contracting. So this patient, he has a VT of 90. We brought him into the hospital on those many occasions that you saw along the graph. And we gave him ATP, 
but we did it ourselves manually by pacing him at 110 beats a minute, which managed to break it. And as you can see here, as it also says on the diagram, by the pacing, it returned him back to regular, regular um, by the pacing being 100% paced. As you can see, the atrial channel paced, right ventricle paced, left ventricle paced. You can see here on a far field, a narrow complex that's more like it paced uh, by ventricular pacing. And we can see on our EGMs, on our electrograms, that the atrial channel to the ventricle channel that we're having one-to-one -one conduction from the atrium to the ventricle and it's paced organized. Now, since then, because he had these repeated events that you saw on the grass, graphs, we actually admitted the patient in. We gave him a VT ablation using 3D mapping. And since that ablation three years ago, this patient has been episode free. Now, I have a question for you. Food for thought. Who is monitoring our remote monitored patients? And this event, where it's a reduction in the biventricular pacing, this isn't considered a red alert as it works by traffic light signal where red alert is urgent and it sends us SMSs and emails and faxes to our hospital system and tries to get us to treat it quickly. This, a, reduce, a reduction in biventricular pacing, is considered as standard a yellow alert. Something that can wait till tomorrow. It will only send us an alert the next morning. And who's tracking these red alerts and yellow alerts? Well, it's becoming quite common because of the burden to have a monitoring team outside of the hospital, a remote monitoring team. Now, are these nurses, are experts in EKGs or cardiac nurses, are they experts in devices? Do they know our patients that we're dealing with? Do they know that this patient is 100% pacing dependent and therefore if his percentage in pacing drops, it can't be that he's got his own conduction back. It's very likely that he's suffering from VT and this is an urgent situation, an urgent acute situation. So just food for thought, who's monitoring our patients? And even then, are they sensitive to these little changes in the devices and in the home monitoring that can point us in the direction of quite severe and important situations. So let's just conclude by saying home monitoring is a vital tool for monitoring patients with implanted devices. No doubt about it, it's improving our quality of treatment and it's reducing our in-clinic burden. And we're managing to track functions that we weren't necessarily before being able to track with them and also diagnose, as we see here, clinical situations and acute clinical situations. However, it's provided that the staff is well trained to detect such events, even when the events are not directly listed, like this VT case, when it was just a reduction in by V pacing. So with that food for short, uh, food for thought, I'll end today's session and uh, thank you very much. Um, if you have any questions, please send them to me on uh, comments, either on the blog page or going to epme.me website or on YouTube or on one of the many different types of media that you can find it on, on the 
uh, on the iTunes podcast version. And really, I would love to hear from you and try incorporating your ideas into this podcast and video blog. So just briefly, coming up next week, I want to discuss with you using devices in arrhythmia diagnosis and not straightforward. Can the device clinic be the source of our arrhythmia diagnosis? And you can get a few pre-pictures right now on the screen. To finish up, I just want to say, please comment, please like, and sign up at epme.me and you will get the ultimate EKG cheat sheet. This is the Swiss Army knife of tools for EKG diagnosis and analysis with a nice analysis form. And I wish I had it when I was starting out. So please sign up and you'll get that today. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you for lending me your ears. Have a great week ahead. Bye. This episode has come to a close. If you would like to get the ultimate ECG cheat sheet free and more valuable content, as well as notes from this and other episodes, please go to epme.me and subscribe. If you like this episode, please subscribe to this show on iTunes. Leave a rating and review. We'll really appreciate it. And if you're watching this on YouTube, leave us a comment below with your thoughts. And remember to hit the like and subscribe to our channel.